Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. Grab your copy of God's Word and go with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Five. Now, if you go to any store that sells fragrances, you're going to run into whether it's whether it's from Myers, where I typically buy my uh, you know body spray or whatever you want to call it, or or some fancy boutique, or from Paris to New York to L.A. There will be hundreds, even thousands of fragrances, but one fragrance stands above them all in popularity, in longevity, in revenue. In units sold. I'm talking about Chanel number five. You can check it out there on your screen. That's what it would look like if you were to go buy that. Chanel number five, without a doubt, the most iconic fragrance of all time. Now, since its creation in 1921, this eau de parfum, which I've worked on pronouncing that, I don't know if I have any French uh, speakers here, but eau de parfum has ex- it's exuded the very essence of femininity. Some describe it this way. It's an abstract, mysterious scent, alive with countless subtle facets, radiating an extravagant floral richness of rose and jasmine with a touch of vanilla to deepen. Now, that's quite the fragrance. And so that got me wondering, what does it actually smell like? You ever read something or a description of something? You say, that description sounds good, but what is it really like? So I had to take a trip to Belk. I had to get in the car, go to Belt, to the Greenwood Mall there, and uh, I took Christy with me because I thought it may be kind of weird for a dude running, <laughs> kind of walking around sniffing up all the women's uh, perfumes there. And so I got Christy, she went with me, and, uh, and we got to smell Chanel number five. I sprayed it and I wafted it and took it in and I sprayed it on a card and right here it is. You can even smell it right here to smell Chanel number five. So now I definitely know what it smells like. And I have to say, I'm just going to be honest, not my favorite scent there at the department store. But it did radiate extravagant floral richness, as that description said. So I know what Chanel number 5 smells like, but I wonder this morning, what does love smell like? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever wondered what love smells like? Now, some of you are thinking, you can't smell love. What are you talking about? You can't smell love. And that's true. Just like you can't smell the color nine, like Chris Rice, the Christian artist, once sang. But if you could smell love, I submit to you this morning that if you could smell love, it would smell like Jesus. It would smell like Jesus. Ephesians 5.2 says this. It says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus was a fragrant offering. And what did he smell like? He smelled like love. Why? Because he was God in the flesh and God is 
love. Therefore, he walked in love and he exuded love. And that means as followers of Jesus Christ, that you and I should smell like love ourselves. We should exude the fragrance of love as we walk in love. And our text today tells us what that means. Because again, we try to put that in there. It's so abstract. How do I smell like love? Well, the text tells us here. I want to invite you to stand this morning to honor the reading of the Word of God this morning. Here in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, the first 14 verses. Here's what the Word of God says. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity... Or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetousness, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Thus ends the reading of the word of God this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you this morning and ask that you would move in our midst. And we want to understand your word here. We want to understand it so that we can love it. And we want to love it so that we can live it. And I ask that you would do that for us this morning. Father, there's a lot of broad categories here this morning. And so, God, I ask that you would help us to take these broad categories and to boil them down so that we might all this morning walk away from here being challenged to walk in love in specific details. Father, move in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to grab your seat back. So here's today's takeaway. Imitate God by walking in love. Imitate God by walking in love. Now, that in itself is a really simple imperative, isn't it? It's really simple to say. Really simple to say, but it's very complex to actually understand and then to live out. You know, the fictional Forrest Gump said, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. And you very well may agree with that sentiment this morning, right? Preacher, it doesn't take a genius to know what love is. And you're right, it doesn't take a genius, but it certainly takes revelation. Now let me say that again. It doesn't take a genius to know what love is, but it does take revelation. In other words, it takes the Word of God. 
It takes God's word to actually know what love is. You see, here in 2020, lots of people believe that they know what love is. And we see quaint little memes, quaint little sayings floating around our social media that tell us that love is love. But what those things, what those people are actually promoting, oftentimes, is not love at all. It's not biblical love. We think we know what love is, but in our sinful selves and darkened society, love gets all twisted up, it gets mangled, it gets deformed so that it's not actually love. So if we're going to imitate God by walking in love, we must know what love is. And the only place... To know that I know what love is, is in the Bible, where God defines it for us. And so here in our text today, God defines for us what love is. And we learn three things here right out the gate about love. First, is that love sacrifices for others. Love sacrifices for others. If we're going to imitate God by walking in love, then we must sacrifice Brothers, look at verse 1 and 2 here. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, when you read that text there and you see that it says that he gave himself up, that Jesus gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's talking about a sacrificial death on the cross, right? He, he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He died at substitutionary death on the cross for you and for me and for every single person who will believe on him. It, it should have been us nailed to that cross. Because we were the sinners deserving of death. We were the ones who had incurred, who had incurred the, the, the righteous wrath of God. But it was Christ upon whom the punishment fell. Right? He willingly went to the cross. He gladly paid the penalty for our sins. And with joy, the Bible tells us, he died the death that we deserve. Now, why in the world would he do that? Because he loved us. Because he loved us. Love sacrifices for others. We read Jesus tells us this in John 15, 13. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And beloved, that's what God's calling you and me to do. He's calling us to lay down our lives for other people. Now, not a dying sacrifice. <laughs> no, don't get me wrong. He's not calling that. It may take that. It, it may take that. The sacrifice that God calls you to may actually take you giving up your life to love others. But primarily what God is calling you to is what we would call a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Now, a living sacrifice is actually harder than a dying sacrifice because 
with the dying sacrifice, it's over, baby. It's done. <laughs> you die once, you're done. Sacrifice over. But as a living sacrifice, you die over and over and over again, day by day by day. And that's what makes the living sacrifice harder. But beloved, it may be hard, but it's godly, right? It's godly. If we're going to imitate God by walking in love, then we must sacrifice for other people. So how can we do that? Let me just give you five quick axioms here to help you live sacrificially for others. And you may be here this morning, and, and you, may, you may realize yourself, or, and if you don't realize it, maybe the person sitting next to you realizes it. You are a very selfish person. You often put yourself first. You often see what you can put off on others or what you can get from others before you give in return. And so today, you need to understand five axioms of sacrificial love. And every one of us have moments of selfishness, okay? The first one is this, that we aim to do good for others. We aim to do good. You see, love never harms. Now, it may hurt, but it doesn't aim to harm. It aims to do good. The second axiom, I would say, for sacrificial love is that we put others first. Right? That's what it means to sacrifice. It means to put ourselves second. God calls you and me to consider others as more important than ourselves. Selfishness in that regard then is the exact opposite of sacrifice. Sacrifice and selflessness, those are synonyms. Sacrifice and selfishness are anonyms. Third, how do we live sacrificially? How do, we, how, how, how do we live out this sacrificial love? The third thing, the third axiom, is that we don't count the cost. We don't count the cost. In other words, we're generous. We give freely and we give, we give fully. We, we don't count the cost. You see, sacrificial love doesn't respond to cost. It responds to need. Now think about that for a moment. If Jesus looked down and he saw the cost, it was a great cost, wasn't it? Would he have ever came? Maybe not. If his motivation was simply the cost, it was a high price. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And they did a lot to him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As all the sins were poured out on him. That's a high cost. That's a high cost. But love, sacrificial love doesn't count the cost. It responds to need. That's what motivated Jesus. We were sinners in need of a Savior, and he was a Savior. He was the Savior. I read a story about a Starbucks barista. This actually makes me want to go to Starbucks after reading this story. <laughs> I have no other reason to go other than this one, but nevertheless... This barista was listening to this longtime regular customer share about how, how she needed a kidney transplant. 
And you know, I mean, you just make friends, right? You go over there all the time for coffee or wherever you go. You, you, you get to know one another. You get to know one another in first name and you have conversations. Well, this day, this longtime regular customer was just sharing the burden that was on her heart about how she needed a kidney transplant and her husband and her son had, had just gotten the bad news that they weren't matches for this lady. And when the barista heard this story, without hesitation, she offered that lady right there to have a blood test to see if she indeed was a match for this lady. And lo and behold, she was a perfect match. A perfect match. And in March of 2008, that barista donated a kidney to that customer. Now that's customer service, right? No, actually, that's love. That's love. That's sacrificial love. She heard the need and she responded to that need as she was able. The fourth axiom I would share with you this morning that I would call you to think about as far as sacrificial love is that we don't keep score. Sacrificial love doesn't keep score. In other words, we expect nothing in return. Nothing at all in return. Love is not a quid pro quo transaction. Now, now quid pro quo, that's a Latin phrase that literally means something for something. Or one thing for another. It, it, it's, it's giving to get. It's I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. It's doing something if my conditions are met. You know, sacrificial love, the love of Christ as he exemplified it for us, is unconditional, isn't it? What conditions could we have met to experience the love of God in Christ? And so sacrificial love is unconditional. It lives to give and expects nothing in return. And the fifth axiom I would give you for sacrificial love from Scripture is that we do it with joy. We do it with joy. Now, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 helps us to understand this, right? Because when we see the Gospels, we see agony. Uh, we, see, we see Jesus praying, Father, let this cup pass from me. We see Jesus go through that, the heaviness, the burden of what he was doing on the cross. But in Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2, we see that it was not just agony, it was joy that Jesus experienced there on the cross. Look at what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Here it is, look. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ did it with joy and for joy. You ever had somebody do something for you and they make you feel so guilty because they make it clear through their words or, or through their actions, their body language, that they clearly hated doing it for you. It's like, oh my gosh, I just done it myself. I mean, I feel terrible that you're doing this. Guys, that's not an act of love, is it? That may be an act of duty, which is in itself 
commendable in one sense, but it's not love. That's not love. Sacrificial love acts with joy. Now, did Jesus enjoy the cross? No way. But he embraced the cross. And he climbed on the cross and he was nailed to that cross with the joy set before him. That you and I would be saved from our sins. And so Eastwood this morning, you need to understand, beloved, that that love sacrifices for others. And if we're going to imitate God, if we're going to walk in love and imitate God, then that should characterize our love. Second, we see in our text here that love avoids acting in sin. Love avoids acting in sin. Now, guys, this is very important for us to understand here in 2020. So listen to me very closely, particularly those of you who are young here today. Listen to me very closely. Anything that God defines as sin is sin. Anything that God defines as sin is sin. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what seems right to you. What matters is what God says. And what God says is right. So let's look at our text here. The Word of God tells us this, Ephesians 3 and 4, verse, chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. He says, but, let, uh, uh, but sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. And so God here in this passage here, through Paul, he focuses on at least least two broad categories here. We can make a case that it's at least two broad categories, but maybe even three categories here. These are three categories, as he says here, of sin that must not even be named amongst us. These are things, as we talked about last week, that we must put off. These are things that we must refuse to participate in. The first category, he says here, is sexual immorality, which translates the Greek word porneia. You hear the word porn in there, porneia. It covers an entire gambit of sins. Fornication, which is sex before marriage. Adultery, which is sex outside of marriage. Lust, which is sex in your brain. Homosexuality, which is sex with a person of the same sex. Bestiality, pedophilia, incest. I mean, all sorts of other depraved sexual acts. And yeah, pornography itself. Viewing pornography is sexual immorality. All of this is impurity. And so he says sexual morality and impurity. Both of those words there describe what it is. It is things, it is sins that make us unclean. And a lot of those sins that are so strong, so tempting to us, have to do with sexuality. I know that much of the world says that these things are okay. And I know that the list of what's okay in the world's eyes keeps Growing, the boundary keeps getting pushed. But God says that it's not okay. 
that these acts are not acts of love. That's the thing you got to get in your brain today. These are not acts of love. They're the opposite of love. And if people claim that it's love, they don't know what love is. Now the second category here that God focuses on is covetousness. Covetousness. Again, a, a broad category. Covetousness is simply this. It's wanting in your heart what belongs to somebody else. Wanting in your heart what belongs to somebody else. Now it's, it's not simply appreciating what somebody else has, right? Maybe you've got a motorcycle, or you've got a, a swimming pool, or, or you've got a, a, a hunting dog. I don't know. You just, you, whatever it is that, that floats your boat, okay? Gets you jazzed up. I can appreciate that thing. I can look at it and say, man, that's cool. I wish I had one of those. And that's not coveting. Here's what coveting is. Coveting says, I want that thing that he or she has. It's wanting what belongs to somebody else so that they can't have it any longer. It's literally mine and taking it from them, okay? That's what covetousness is. It's a sin of the heart that leads to sin in life, okay? There in verse 5, notice what God calls covetousness. Ephesians 5.5, 5, God calls covetousness, covetousness being an idolater. Being an idolater. In other words, when we struggle with covetousness, we are loving something more than God. And that's an idol every time. Right? It's, it's an idol every time. And it could be anything. It could be a spouse. It could be a car. It could be a house, it could be a job, it could be a TV. And I would submit to you even this morning that so much of the economic conversations that we're seeing right now is based in covetousness, that we're seeing discussed on TV and news and uh, our social media. It's economic, it's economic covetousness, so much of it, right? Now don't get me wrong, capitalism has its besetting sins as well. But socialism, communism as a system says, I want what you have and I'm going to use the power of government or force to take it from you. I'm not going to get into politics here. I'm going to move on real quickly. But just know that there is no political system that is neutral, okay? Every political system can be harnessed for wickedness. And some particular, every, everyone has besetting sins that so easily become entangled in them. But the third category you need to see here this morning that God focuses on here, that we're to avoid, is corrupt speech. Corrupt speech. That, that's sort of a big category here. He says filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. In other words, guys, we are to have clean mouths. We're to use words, as we said last week, that build up, that don't tear down, that lift other, people's up, uh, other people up, that, that make them better after having heard them than they were before. So Christians should avoid coarse, foolish talking, crude joking. Those who walk in the light will not use language that's disgraceful or shameful. 
And guys, while there's nothing wrong with humor, right? I mean, humor's good. Humor can be abused. It can be malicious. It can be vulgar. And that sort of thing should not come out of our mouths. He says, put that off. And what do you replace it with? Thanksgiving. If you're going to open your mouth, let Thanksgiving come from it, right? Thank God those are the antidotes to all the things that you see, particularly even covetousness. You want to battle covetousness? Thank God for what you have. Somebody said the grass is always greener on the other side. And somebody else said the reason it's greener probably is because they take the time to water it and appreciate it. And that's what you and I need to do for our side of the fence. But here's the key that you need to see. Not only is this unloving, but notice here what comes with these things. A warning comes. He gives us a warning here in verse 5 and 6. He says, For you may be sure of this, Ephesians 5, verse 5 and 6, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, and covetous that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These things will send you to hell is what he's saying. Just straight up. If you walk in these things, if you habituate in these things, if these things become the defining aspect of who you are, Therefore, he says, avoid these things and, and don't hang with people who do them, he says. Don't become partners with them. How blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of, wicked, of the wicked, nor sit in the, the seat of scoffers, or stand in the cloud of scoffers. I'm messing that one up. I need to memorize that one better. That's, a, that's a Psalm 1-1, all right? The wise man avoids those things. He does not partner himself with those things. The wise woman does not enjoin herself to that sort of thing. Instead, we walk in the light. We walk in the light. We walk as children of light and try to discern what's pleasing to God. Here's the final thing this morning as love is characterized here. So we see that love, as we see here in the text, is that love sacrifices for others. Love, it says here, avoids acting in sin. But here's the final thing that we see in our text here that love does, how, it, how love is defined here, is that love exposes sinful deeds. Now this is important because this, this may seem um, like it doesn't follow, like it doesn't go together here. Love exposing deeds. Ben, that sounds so judgmental. That sounds so unloving. In fact, that sounds hateful. And that's what the world around us would tell you and me, right? But it says right in our text that love exposes sinful deeds. Look at verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. In other words, avoid acts of sin. But instead, he goes a step further. Notice the step further here. Expose them. Expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. 
But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Love exposes sinful deeds. It doesn't cover it over. It doesn't ignore it. It exposes sinful deeds. So where you start, if you're going to start exposing sinful deeds, where do you start? And the answer is in your own heart. Isn't that what Jesus taught us? Matthew 7, 5. Matthew 7, 5. Jesus says this. Jesus says this. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So that's where you begin. You go on a mission to expose sin, start with yourself. Otherwise, you are a hypocrite. you got to begin with you. And, and let's just be honest. This is why we often don't expose sin. Because we stop at ourselves and say, I don't have this right, so I can't expose them. Beloved, this should actually be motivation for you and for me to walk in the light, right? So that we could do what God's called us to do. Not to be jerks, but to be lovers of humanity, that we would be salt and light in this world. Start with yourself, but don't stop with yourself. Again, notice what Jesus says. Get the log out of your own eye so that you can see to get the speck out of your brothers. In other words, once the log's out, you're addressing the log in you. Then go after the speck. Start with you. But we can't be silent. Love is not silent. Or let's say it the other way. Silence is not love. Now just imagine with me for a moment that you see somebody out there walking on a train track. And you can see it. A train is coming a thousand miles an hour and you can see it's coming and you hear the horn and you hear all those things and you get off the track you get as far away from the track as you can because you want nothing to do with that train that's coming you have avoided the train but you never said a word to the person that was on the track there and for some reason they don't hear it maybe they've got their headphones in right they got their earbuds in and for some reason the noise there is so loud that they have no idea that that train is coming up behind them what does love do love says hey the train's coming get off the track love even may go get them and tackle them off the track but what love doesn't do is remain silent And beloved, those of us around us are facing a train. It is the train of death and the train of God's wrath that is righteously coming toward them, speeding toward them. And love calls you and me to lovingly open our mouths and expose sin for sin. We warn We call out, we beseech people, turn from that. Get off that. 
And yeah, you know what? You're going to be labeled a hater. You're going to be labeled intolerant. You're going to be labeled all sorts of things. But you know what God is going to label you? A lover of men and women. Beloved, God has called you and me to imitate God. Is God silent about sin? (laughs) No way. He speaks the truth in love, and that's what you and I need to do as well. So I would pray that Eastwood Baptist Church would be mimickers of God who walks in love. And if you're here this morning and you've never gotten off that train track of sin and the train is coming up behind you, I'm I'm warning you now, get off the track. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and you'll be saved. You'll be saved, I beg you. Come to Christ, come to Christ. Get off that track and be saved. Repent and trust in Jesus. Here's my final prayer this morning. May your life be a life of love. May a life of love permeate your presence. Biblical love biblical love. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that He sent Jesus to be your Savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live and he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. 
Thank you again for connecting with us, and I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.